Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 57. The guerrilla campaign is now well underway, and the leaders of the Boer commandos and their remaining political leader, Andries Steyn, the president of the Free State, are due to meet 100 kilometers west of Johannesburg, and that's in the last week of the month. The gathering was scheduled to take place on the farm Seiferfontein, where Louis Boerter, Coeur de la Rey, and other commanders were heading determined to finalise the new strategy for the coming insurgency. Absent, though, was General Christian de Vett, who'd almost been captured by General Knox at Skumansdrift, and the Boer general was now lying low in the Free State. But not for long, as we'll see. Unfortunately for De Vett, General Knox and his men were going to attack him once more, and this time the November engagement would deal De Vett one of his worst defeats of the war. That story is for next week. Meanwhile, in the northern Transvaal town of Petersburg, Boers had begun to congregate, determined to continue the war. Young leaders like Bayers and Kemp arrived in the town, while Coeur de la Rey was active to the west as he prepared for the late October powwow. It was here that Louis Boerta met with the new youthful and passionate leaders and laid out his initial plan. Boerta would maintain command of southeast Transvaal, Ben Fulion the northeast, and the west would remain Coeur de la Rey's hunting ground. They all continued to make strenuous efforts to keep their men in the field, but it was difficult. And if you think it was just the British burning farms in order to send a message, you're wrong. Louis Boerta had also been indulging in a little arson to make a political point. I will be compelled, Boerter wrote to one of his commanders later, if they do not listen to this, to confiscate everything movable or immovable and also to burn their houses. Boerter also revealed another plan he'd long been working on. That was to attack the Cape. This seemed impossible, rather like Stalin ordering an attack on Germany while fighting his defensive campaign in 1941. But Boerter was aware of the strength and mobility and also that the Cape Afrikaners may decide to turn out and fight against the British if their brethren achieved successes in the colony. It's a measure of just how highly the Boers regarded Boerter that no one laughed at the idea. More about this in a while. Also underway, the khaki election in Britain, where the Conservatives and their Liberal Unionist allies were hoping to gain a few seats now that the Boer War appeared to be over. At least, that was the line their field marshal in South Africa was taking. Lord Roberts, as we know, was preparing to depart the country, little knowing that he was to remain on the continent another three months, dealing with a spluttering war that burst back into the public consciousness. There's another issue that begins to worry the British authorities, and that's refugees. In podcast 55 and last week, we heard how Boer women and children were now being housed in refugee camps in their thousands. But they were not alone. Also drifting on the felt were tens of thousands of black refugees who'd been working on Boer farms and were forced off the land when the farm burnings began in earnest, back in September. Boer commandos were also taking revenge on some black clans who supported the British and London was obligated to protect or house these people. The military administration was faced with two main problems after annexing the Transvaal and the Free State Republics. First, to alleviate the starvation and destitution that the war had brought to broad swathes of South Africa, and second, to give protection to black communities as well as white regarded as allies. Already, by the end of July 1900, black communities had moved to garrison towns and military camps pleading for assistance as their way of life had been shattered by almost a year of violence between Boer and Brit. 
I'll return to some of these stories through this series, and as you'll see, the complexities of the Anglo-Boer War sometimes caused black clans to split and break up, as it had the white clans. As with whites, brothers fought brothers and helped both sides, then were forced to face their family chaos. Inter-clan clashes intensified. Nations like the Basutu and the Isuzulu were engaged on both sides, and often these nations used the war to gain land and power. History is full of people with initiative, and many chiefs eyed the war as a quick way to increase treasure and their own influence, while others gifted in diplomacy, and they squeezed concessions from both the Boers and the British. At Freiburg in the Free State, thousands of black refugees had moved into the town by October 1900. Authorities there tried to impose a fee for grazing rights, as the people arrived with livestock, but the refugees simply ignored the demands. The military then couldn't force them out. In the western Transvaal, large numbers of refugees were reported alongside the military barracks, often teeming with heads of cattle and sheep numbering in the many thousands. But others arrived destitute and close to starvation. The people of Swartpois had seen their town destroyed by General Grobelau for supporting the British and ended up at Vormaranstadt being granted assistance by the British military there. This story was repeated across the country. In garrison towns, relief was occasionally dispensed through the offices of the district commissioners, but not always. When Karl Kekani, a chief from Hammanskral to the north of Pretoria, arrived at the capital with 800 people and asked the British for help, General Maxwell, who was in charge, flatly refused. But he knew what other military commanders also knew. If they simply threw these refugees back onto the felt, they'd create more enemies and would be pushing these people into the support of the Boers. These diplomatic machinations would cause the British some grief in the coming year. So in the meantime, we must concentrate on the Kharki or English election. In England, the electioneering had taken on a particularly bitter edge, but the treatment of Boer women and children in concentration camps, an issue that would cause increased political anger in England, was yet to feature in newspapers. Right now, it was a perfect moment for Lord Salisbury and his Conservatives to conduct a snap election. Joseph Chamberlain was the leader of the Liberal Unionists, who were allied with the Conservatives, but it was Joseph who had gone to Queen Victoria to ask her to dissolve the government in September and call a new election. That had angered the Liberals and their leader, Henry Campbell Bannerman. Eventually, the election wound up on October 25th, with the Conservatives and their Liberal Unionists securing 402 seats versus the Liberals' 183. The most important aspect in this election was the emergence of a new party called the Labour Representative Committee, which eventually morphed into the Labour Party. It was the first time they fought an election, and it didn't go well. Keir Hardy and Richard Bell were the only members of Parliament after the 1900 election, still not bad for a bunch that had only been around for around four months. We know, too, that it was the first time that Winston Churchill was elected to the House of Commons for the Oldham constituency. It was also the final general election of the Victorian era. Naturally, these results raised the government's spirits, extending their run by another five years. And only a few months earlier, the Liberals were certain of victory as the Conservative government staggered through the disasters of Black Week and the losses they'd incurred in South Africa. Joseph Chamberlain, the man who'd been blamed for starting the war in South Africa in the first place, was particularly happy in late October. We are hard at work on the changes in the garden. 
is and there's been a great deal of lopping of the old oaks. By late October, he was off on holiday to Gibraltar, sailing aboard the warship HMS Caesar, which caused Punch magazine to pen one of its more memorable cartoons. Campbell Bannerman's Liberal Party and the newly formed Labour Party were muttering darkly about how the Conservatives had played a fast one by calling the snap election. It was something for which the Conservatives would not be forgiven and it would not be forgotten. Back in the Cape, the Governor, Lord Alfred Milner, was fretting as usual. He'd been watching Lord Roberts's campaign with a great deal of misgiving, warning constantly that the rush to take Pretoria and Johannesburg would leave gaps in the vast territory that the Boers would exploit. Whatever faults Milner had, and there were many, one was not naivety about Boer ability. Another general who was about to head back to England, Red vs. Buller, was even more forthright. Earlier in the war, Buller had written his thoughts on this matter down, and it's worthwhile recounting this in particular. And he wrote, The fatal error is not to hold District A and make sure of it before you go on to District B, he said. The consequence is we have a big army campaigning away in the front and the enemy swarming in the country behind it. You only wear out your footmen and kill your horses. And this is precisely what had happened. Milner was also growing more worried about Lord Kitchener, who was even more in a hurry than Lord Roberts. At the same time, the new British government had made a few new appointments back in London. Lord Lansdowne had moved on from the war office and handed it over to St. John Broderick. Milner immediately penned a letter to St. John, warning that the war was now in a phase that demanded endurance, while St. John was receiving opposite advice from Lord Roberts, who wanted troops to start withdrawing from South Africa. It was already agreed that the Canadian contingent should sail for Canada. The Imperial Yeomanry were leaving as well. The city Imperial units had sailed in late September and by the end of October were marching from the London docks, passing crowds who gathered in their thousands. St. John Broderick had been handed a poisoned chalice. Although he had no inkling as he watched the bands play and the crowds cheer his bloodied army as it marched home from the first phase of the Anglo-Boer War. We must switch our gaze now to the northern Transvaal, where our intrepid Boer narrator, the 17-year-old Denis Reitz, has arrived at a town called Warmbaths with his two older brothers. Here he found a thousand-strong commander unit under General Bayers, who he eyed suspiciously and said, He had been a lawyer before the war and was now in command of the Northwest under General Butter's new scheme of reorganization. He was a brave man, but I never liked him. That was because the general was besotted with religion and had an obsessive streak that bordered on fanaticism. While Reitz was happy to rejoin his old colleagues from the Afrikaner Commander Corps under the new officer called Lodi Krauser, he and his brothers technically came under General Bayer's overall command as well. They spent the time riding around the countryside as Bayer's men gathered at warm baths. One of Denise's tasks was to watch a large English military camp at Pinar's River, 35 kilometers north of Pretoria. However, it was General Bayer's fanaticism that irked this young Boer most. He himself was camped close to us, he wrote. A dark, moody man who lost no opportunity of holding prayer meetings, he says in his book published after the war called Commando. With him was the Reverend Creel, a Dutch Reformed parson, equally zealous, 
So between the two, we were continually bidden to religious services. And they even went the length of ordering all the younger men to attend Bible classes. You can imagine the youngster having survived numerous battles, a veteran of a year of war, reacting to this kind of management technique. When my brothers and I ignored the order, he says bluntly, General Bayers and Mr. Creel rode over in person to expostulate with us and even threatened to turn us out of the commando, but we stuck to our guns and heard nothing further of it. This is another example of the Boer version of democracy in action. Even in religion, in the midst of a war, a direct order from a commanding officer, but the individual chose to ignore this uh, without ramification. How can you order veterans to do something they don't want to? Bayers knew he could not really force them to do anything and actually needed men of Reitz's caliber. In fact, says Denise Reitz mischievously, we rather gained in reputation for the Boers, although a religious people are not intolerant on matters of faith. I did not care for the Bayers, but I liked the old predicant, that's a priest, for all his narrowness, and afterwards in the Cape Colony I grew to admire him as a steadfast man. The spring weather had renewed the countryside and the war. On the 27th of October, west of Johannesburg, at the farm Saferfontein, most of the Boer leadership gathered without their slippery General de Vett, who was going to arrive late. Generals de la Rey, Smuts, Boerter, and Andries Steyn, the President of the Free State, and a number of other leaders gathered in what was called an idyllic spot. Their tents stood in the shelter of mimosa trees in full bloom, their sweet blossoms spreading their calming odour across the landscape. Nearby, orange and nachi, that's Afrikaans for tangerine, trees, still harboured fruit, ripe for the picking. Their horses had good grazing. There was even a natural lake nearby for swimming and drinking water. Only, this wasn't a holiday, although the men loved the calm oasis in the midst of the storm of war. Their camp had one main disadvantage. The British knew exactly where they were. But the British didn't know that the Boers had a network of heliographs, which constantly kept Boerta and the other generals informed about troop movements so they could make their escape should the English mobilise. Furthermore, the Boers had an ace up their sleeve. It was a British man who switched sides. John Acton, who'd renamed himself Jan Ekstien, was an experienced telegraph operator who hacked into the English telegraph lines and intercepted all communication between British units in the area. The idea of using codes was still novel, and the British thought the Boers too dull and uninformed to intercept their calls, which of course is superbly stupid. Never underestimate the enemy, they say. The Boers had information about the exact whereabouts of each British unit in the sector, including their marching orders, so they knew how much time they had for their all-important strategic meeting at Saferfontein. And what a discussion it was. There were two decisions. Firstly, all supported Boerter's new plan of action with one important addition. General Jan Smuts had suggested a bold attack on the Natal colony with 5,000 men under Boerter and the Cape, where Generals de la Rey and de Vett with 5,000 men each would hopefully foment an Afrikaner uprising there. But the second decision was brilliant, although it was based on split-second timing. Smuts explained how he wanted to use these 15,000 men first to launch a surprise attack on the Johannesburg gold mines before they'd split up and move off 
to Natal and the Cape. Remember that months earlier, General Boerter was dead set against the idea of blowing up the gold mines. But now, with the main cities in British hands, he had a change of heart. Roberts and Kitchener were burning farms and leaving their women and children to wander the felt in extreme danger. The Boers had their backs to the wall. The plan went like this. First, lure the British to the far corners of South Africa with a tax on isolated garrisons. Then, in January or February 1901, the Boers would swoop on Johannesburg in a combined attack loaded with dynamite. They would reduce the mines to rubble, and by the time the British recovered from the shock, the commanders would launch their raids into Natal and the Cape. It was a typically brilliant Jan Smuts plan, completely unexpected. As Boer leadership poured over the details, they were fully aware Christian de Wett was absent. There was no time, however, to find out where he was because at that moment Jan Extian, or John Acton, the British turncoat, sent an urgent message to the meeting that he had picked up a large division of British troops heading straight towards Saferfontein and it was time to leave. And so it's time for us to leave too, kicking embers of our fire aside and stuffing the last oranges and nachis into our bags as we saddle up and head off into the sunset. Next week, Christian de Wett bumps into General Knox one more time, and this time de Wett is dealt a crippling blow by the man with a waxed moustache. Once more, however, it could have been a little worse, as you will hear. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes, and you can mail me via our website at abwarpodcast.com. Until then, goodbye. <laughs> Bring me back to the old Transvaal, there where my